Get your Bibles out to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to be sharing with you an amazing story from the Bible. It's, in fact, it's one of my favorite stories. But I hope you've been enjoying the series on shame. Somebody asked me, Pastor, are we starting a new series yet? I know I'm not starting a new series yet because I want to make sure everybody gets free from shame. Because a, a shame-free church is a happy church. It's a holy church. And I can add some more H's, Pastor Dick. It's a harvesting church. It's a, yeah, all those kinds of things. There we go. There we go. How many of you have been getting, how many of you know the word of God is of none effect if we don't apply it to our lives? Anybody been applying this to your life personally? Okay, good. Two of you. That's why we're still preaching on shame. Okay. I hope more of you than that. Anybody applying this to your life? I'm serious. Are you getting some freedom from shame? Because otherwise I'm wasting my breath. All right. And uh, this has been some good stuff because the Bible deals with this topic a lot. How many of you last week were appreciative of the fact that Hagar had a God who sees her and knows everything about her? And one of the lies of the devil is that God doesn't see, God doesn't care, and God doesn't know the full details about what's going on in your life. And can you just, every time the devil wants to, to, to speak his lies in your brain about the, lying about God's character, you need to tell him, devil, you are a liar. God sees me. His eyes are never off of me. He knows everything about me. He knows every detail of my life, and he cares. This is amazing news. So it's the devil who makes us feel alone. It's the devil who makes us feel like God doesn't give a rip about our lives. And you just have to know how to fight him because that'll put you in a hole in a hurry if you start listening to his lies. Now, also in my quiet time this morning, I turned my Bible to Psalm 136 and I just felt like it was a kiss from heaven because how many of you know I don't take lightly feeding the sheep, but there's a lot of things we could talk about. And I really want to be speaking what's on the Holy Spirit's heart for Livingstone's church at this very moment. How many think that's an important thing. All of the Bible is true, but we need to hear what does the Holy Spirit saying to us for such a time as this. And, uh, and so I, I open up my Bible to Psalm 136. Now, if you know anything about this Psalm, there's 26 verses, and the second half of every verse says exactly the same thing. It says, His faithful love endures forever. Now, I'm talking to you today about covenant love. How many of you know if you understand your covenant with God, it will free you because you live under the faithful love of God that endures forever. His covenant love, you will live under that love for the rest of eternity. And it is impossible to stay a victim of shame if you understand the covenant relationship that we have with God. And you understand that his faithful love endures over your life forever and ever and ever. So these are important truths to remind ourselves of. Because listen, shame keeps us focusing on ourselves. Shame keeps us living under this wet blanket. Shame is the constant accusation of the devil telling you you're not enough, that you'll never get free, that you're going to be stuck, that you can't change. How many of you know a church that believes that is, is an impotent church? And so this message is critically important because we need to be unleashed in this season to love our community with the joy of the Lord and with the confidence that we have as sons and daughters who are in covenant with God Almighty. So take a look with me on the power of covenant love. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I'll start with verse 1. It says, One day, David asked, Is there anyone in Saul's family that's still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And let me give you a little bit of, of a background information here. At the time of the writing of this uh, chapter, David is reigning as king over a united Israel. Saul and Jonathan had died probably some 15 to 20 years earlier. 
You all remember the prophet Samuel came and anointed David when he was just a teenager to replace King Saul because of Saul's rebellious heart and because of his ongoing willful acts of disobedience. Now, can I just encourage you all, if you want to be free from shame, you need to be free from guilt. If you want to be free from guilt, you got to be free from sin. If you want to be free from sin, how about we live obedient, God-honoring, God-pleasing lives? Amen? You can live like Saul, but you'll forfeit the anointing and the calling of God on your life many times um, if we continue in willful, stubborn obedience. And so God says, you know, I've had it. I'm, I'm going to anoint a man after my own heart. Of course, he anointed David. David's father had completely forgotten about him, which shows you how God works. Uh, but God the Father had not forgotten about David. In fact, he was seen and known by God. And you remember when Samuel anointed him in that very private uh, anointing time. But now David is now the king. And here's what I love about Jonathan. You all know David and Jonathan were best buds. Saul's son, Jonathan, he recognized that David was God's choice to replace his father, King Saul. He could have been jealous. He could have resisted David. But instead, this is what I love, he wasn't threatened by the calling that God had on David's life. In fact, even though he was the next heir in line for the throne, he recognized God was doing something sovereign. How many of you know we don't have to be in competition with the person next to you? Because we're all masterpieces, we all have a call of God on our life, and the best thing to do, the way to be a good friend is to recognize the call of God on your neighbor, and don't be jealous of their call or resist the call, but support their call and cheer them on and recognize what God's doing. But this says something powerful about Jonathan's heart and about his character. He was a humble man, and he loved David, and he was friends with David. In fact, they were more than friends. Before Jonathan is killed in battle, we read that Jonathan and David made a covenant together. Now, there's a number of passages we could get into, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to pull out one of them. It's in 1 Samuel 20, 41 and 42. It says, Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. Now, this is when it's confirmed that Saul was trying to kill David, and Jonathan helped him to know that, and David is getting ready to be on the run. Now, by the way, a reminder here, David is on the run for his life, for 13 years. Now, I just put this in my own life personally. How would you like to wake up every morning and the first thought on your mind is, there's a crazy king out there with his entire army trying to kill me today. And he's intent on, I mean, you know, when you do something for 13 years, you're pretty serious about it. So Saul is really serious about killing David. 13 years of pursuing this man to kill him. And so David is, is weeping because he realizes his relationship with Jonathan is not going to be the same. And I want you to see what happens next. Verse 42, at last Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond. This is a covenant bond between us. And I want you to look at the last part between us, Jonathan and David, and our children, Forever, which means our children and their children and their children. In other words, how many of you have seen this? This is a covenant relationship that's happening between David and Jonathan that includes not only them, but all their kids and their kids' kids forever. This is an amazing, amazing covenant. And so this is the context for David's question. I want you to see David's heart here. After 20 or so years of, of his friend's death, his memory is still fresh in David's heart. Don't you appreciate seeing the inside, the guts of a king like this? He's thinking about his friend Jonathan. He's thinking about the covenant that they made together years and years ago. And here's David's question. I want to show kindness 
to the family of Saul. Is there anybody in Saul's family that I can bless? Notice the language here, that I can bless on behalf of my covenant relationship with Jonathan. Verse 2, he summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. And then the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. But they add here, he is crippled in both of his feet. Notice, Ziba does not give the son's name, but he focuses on the son's brokenness. He focuses on this young man's uh, crippling effect or on his feet and on his legs, all right? It was customary in those days when a new regime, a new power, a new king took over, they would find all the relatives of the competing family and murder all of them. You read stories about this in the Bible. How many can figure out if you're the grandson and your grandpa was Saul and you knew how much your grandpa hated David and now your grandpa and your dad were killed in battle and David is now going to become king, how many of you think you might be a little concerned about your safety and well-being? And so that's exactly what happened in this situation because they assumed that David hated them and that David would seek them out and that David would kill them. But aren't you glad David is not your normal king? David is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And David's heart is not vengeance. His heart is blessing. Can I just say this too? The heart of true leadership is to bless and serve and to reveal the kindness of God, not to get back at people. And I know even this morning, as we have Jennifer Ruth with us, how many of you think it'd be nice to bring godliness and righteousness and the heart of Jesus back into the political environment, which has become so wicked and so vengeful? Uh, I think we need an awakening, and I think it's God's people that are able to bring that about. But here's what I want you to see. Jonathan's family had been lied to. Jonathan's family had been told, watch out, because if David becomes king, he's going to get you. And I want you to see what happens, the, the crippling effects of a lie. Look with me in 2 Samuel 4.4. This gives you a little background about this man named Mephibosheth. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old. When the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and she fled. She took off running. But as she hurried away, she dropped Mephibosheth. She dropped this five-year-old boy. And because of the fall, there was serious damage that was done. I don't know if his legs were broken, his ankles were broken, what kind of complications happened. But from that point forward, this five-year-old boy was crippled for the rest of his life. Now, here's what I want you to see, and this is, this is profound. There are people who are still crippled because they believe a lie about God. I heard a powerful story, a true story one time. I've shared this at various funeral settings because I think it highlights the crippling effects of believing lies, especially lies about God. A woman was... It was late at night before the grocery store closed. Let's say she was down here at Strax or Jewel, and uh, she's putting her groceries in her car. She gets in her car. She starts to take off. She's driving down the road. She notices this man is following her, and he's, he's waving his arms at her, and she doesn't know this guy, and so it's late at night. It's dark, so she's 
obviously concerned. So she makes a quick right, and the guy makes a quick right. And she drives her down the road. She speeds up. He speeds up. She makes a quick left. He makes a quick left. At this point, she realizes this crazy guy is following me. I have no idea what his intentions are. She starts to panic. Finally, she comes across a local gas station. She flies into the gas station, slams on her brakes, puts the car in park, door swings open. She doesn't even close the door. She bolts into the building. She goes up to the clerk, and she starts saying, please, please call the police. Some crazy man is chasing me the man that was chasing her gets out of his car he runs into the building and he says ma'am ma'am no i'm not trying to hurt you i'm not trying to hurt you and then he tells her the rest of the story when you were putting your bags in the trunk of your car a man snuck in the back seat he was hiding in your back seat i saw him get in i've been chasing you down to warn you of the danger that was impending if he if you went to your house and this guy sneaks out of the car who knows what he's going to do to you at that moment she realized i thought you were my enemy you're actually my best friend how many christians How many unbelievers, how many lost people in the world are still believing lies about God that cripple them? They think God's out to get them when God's out to bless them. David's heart was, who is it in Saul's family that I could pursue for the purpose not of vengeance, but of blessing? I can't tell you how many people, because we witness to people all the time, invite people to church all the time, and, and this is a common, common line. Pastor, if we came into church, the roof would rip, rip open and lightning would come down and strike us. Listen, as long as you have that view of God, you'll be a cripple for the rest of your life. The whole reason this boy was hurt is because of this victim mentality that says David's out to get us when David's actually out to bless him. I just wonder how many people are sitting in this room today, you're still crippled by shame or crippled by guilt or crippled by sin from your past simply because you're choosing to believe lies about what God wants to do now. Selah moment. I believe there are many people in this room, God's wanting to bring you, he's inviting you into a destiny that's awesome, but if you keep believing lies about who he is, about what he can or can't do, you'll stay crippled for the rest of your life. Now you can come to church and you can read your Bible and you can pray and you can sing these songs and you can still be a spiritual cripple. How many of you know this is true? Because here's the sad thing, Mephibosheth had no idea that his dad made a covenant with the king. He was living in ignorance of his covenant. You know, there are people in church all the time. I mean, you know, what God says in the Bible is true. And he asks us to believe it. And how many of you know there's crazy promises in the Bible about what God wants to do for us? There are, I'm talking there are exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think promises in the Bible. And God expects us to believe what he says. And you can come to church and you can go through the motions. You can stay under, under the cloud of shame and you can live a defeated life, and you're going to go to heaven someday, but because you don't understand your covenant with God, you will live beneath what God has for you. And then you'll, and then you'll blame God for it, because you believe a lie about God. Mephibosheth believed a lie. His nurse believed a lie. His family believed a lie. And so now he's been living in a crippled condition. Now, when the Bible says David wants to show kindness, that Hebrew word is the word has said, which means it's a, it's a covenant term. It's not just talking about being nice to people. It's talking about covenant niceness. It's, it's talking about recognizing there's a special relationship between us. And because of that relationship, I'm going to be kind to you and to your seed because of the relationship that I formed with your father, Jonathan. And look at what it says in verse four very quickly. Be- 
um, who is he, the king asked. He's wanting to know, who, who's this in the member of Saul's family that I can bless? Uh, does Jonathan have any sons? Who is this? And where is he? Verse 4, where is he? And the answer is in Lodabar. Now, I told you last week, isn't it beautiful when you read the Bible, you see the meanings of names. Lodabar means a place uh, of no pasture. It, it, it's like a, a barren wasteland. Have any of you ever lived there in a barren wasteland? Any of you ever in your BC days been running from God and you're living in a barren wasteland? There's nothing good happening. There's no blessing happening. All of your relationships are falling apart. Uh, it's, it's a horrible thing to be separated from God. And that's exactly where he finds himself, living in Lodabar. And so, I love this, David sent for him. Some versions say, fetched him. They brought him from Maker's home, and his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Now, don't you appreciate, again, David could have just simply told this, this boy, come, and he would have had to come because the king had given an order. But that's not the mercy and the kindness of God. Have you experienced God doesn't just command you to do things. He enables you with his mercy and grace to do what he commands you to do. In other words, he pursues you when you're not looking for him. I mean, this is such a powerful picture of the mercy of God chasing us down because God seeks and saves those who are lost. So he doesn't just say, get here and my presence has a command. He sends a delegation out to find him and to provide for him and to bring him back into his presence. Now, I was joking around earlier. Mephibosheth's a name that's fallen out of use. And I want to encourage some of you pregnant mamas out there. This is a name we need to pull out of history, all right? It's a good name. It's a powerful name. We're going to get into it. I'm looking at Shadeo and Drew. Hey, you guys, you got twins coming. Come on, this... Now, if your, kid, if your kid can say Mephibosheth by kindergarten, they are going to be a, he, he's going to be an incredible orator. Right? I, I, or if your kid can spell Mephibosheth by kindergarten, this kid's going to have promise, all right? I'm telling you, this is a serious name. Mephibosheth. Don't forget it. Look what happens next. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect, and David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Can I just ask you to try to put yourself in Mephibosheth's body at that moment? I'm going to prove whether I can communicate to the rest of the service. What would it be like knowing that you have been fetched and brought into the presence and the glory and the splendor of the king and your grandpa spent 13 years trying to kill the person you're now in front of? I mean, you know, at that moment... Your posture on your face is probably a good posture. Using the word your servant is probably not a bad place to be. And at this moment, it's not just respect that's happening here. It is absolute dread. Because what he's expecting is for the king to stand up and to make his way and to put his neck on Mephibosheth's or put his foot on Mephibosheth's neck and cut his head off in his presence because that's the way kings used to deal with problem people like this. This was the heir to the throne, Mephibosheth, standing before him. Picture him in rags. Picture him dirty, unkept, living in Lodabar, the backside of the wilderness, crippled in his feet. He cannot even stand before the king. He's probably dragged himself in there in the king's presence. And, uh, and I want you to see this. This is amazing. David did not know the boy. David, David had probably never met Mephibosheth. He did what he did, listen, for the sake of Jonathan, whom he loved. 
How many of you know there are times in your life you get blessings because of the relationships your mom and dad had? And the reason they're blessing you is because they knew your parents and they loved your parents. What David is saying here is, I've never met you until right now, but I have a very special relationship with your father. In fact, I want to tell you about it sometime. I want to tell you about our relationship. When David looked at this boy, this is important, he did not see a cripple. He saw Jonathan. He did not see a cripple. He never ever once in this whole passage does David ever refer to this young man's brokenness. When he looks at this boy, he sees the boy's father, who he's in covenant relationship with, a blood covenant. How many of you know the parallel here to the gospel is huge? There are people that come to church or don't come to church because they're afraid how God views them. But they don't understand that our big brother Jesus is in covenant with God the Father. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your brokenness. He doesn't notice you're crippled. He doesn't notice your imperfections. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. And the goodness and kindness that God gives to us, he gives to us on the basis of Jesus. And so he doesn't call us out in our wickedness and shame. He's gentle with us. And while we deserve his judgment and his justice, Instead, he calls us by our name, which is amazing. How I mean, you know God knows your name? He knows everything about you. He knows every, 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 every thought that you've ever thought before you thought them in the Bible, Psalm 139. What an incredible knowing God has of us. And he doesn't look at you today, and he's not going, tisk tisk. you had a bad week. Those of you that got in a fight with your spouse or on your way to church, God's not going, oh, great, now you're coming in to worship me. That's not how he thinks. That's how we think. God just looks at a collective body of people who are in covenant with him through Jesus and his blood. And when he looks at you this morning, he's not looking at you through the eyes of all your imperfections. He's looking at you through the eyes of his son. And he calls you by name. And he calls me by name. Now, this is incredible. Because Mephibosheth's name, if you want to say the, his middle name, his, the, the foundation of his name, the, the word in English is Bosheth, B-O, you can see it there, Bosheth, it means a shameful thing. So here you have a shameful thing, he's crippled, he's dirty, he's unkept, he's wearing probably old clothes, he's not wearing the robes of a king or a prince, and he craw comes crawling into the king's presence, and he literally feels like, I am a shameful thing. I don't even deserve to be here. But I want you to see something. that The prefix there, that M-E-P-H-I, before Bosheth, that prefix means to exterminate or scatter or to destroy. So Mephibosheth's name means to scatter or destroy shame. Now, this is amazing. How many of you know the devil has a name for you? And he stops with Bosheth. His name is, you're a shameful thing. God has a destiny over your name. His name is, no, you're not a shameful thing. I will heal you of your shame so that you can be a dispeller of the shame of other people. In other words, how many of you figured out your brokenness and shame and pain are many times the platform after God heals you, the platform to minister and to disperse that very thing in the lives of other people? 
That's why, listen, some of you that have been through the worst hell and you've been through brokenness and pain, the Lord says the same amount of pain and brokenness in your past is, is the same amount of the greater glory that I'm about to reveal through your life because God never lets the devil have the victory over the shameful things that happen in your past. He will always, always, always glorify his name. And how many of you know Mephibosheth did not have anything against David? He was a victim of his grandfather's rage and jealousy. There are some of you here this morning, when you think of your family tree, it is a twisted, crooked, broken mess. And when you just think of your family, there's sexual perversion in your family line. There's drunkenness. There's addiction. There's divorce. Generations of family brokenness. There's anger. There's bitterness. There's resentment that runs through family lines. And here's the good news. You don't have to be defined by your family and your heritage and what your grandpa did. We can break all of that at the cross. This is the power of covenant. Now, the sad thing is Mephibosheth has no idea. His dad made covenant with the king. He's ignorant of his covenant responsibilities and blessings. And so he's acting like a servant, and he's laying before David. In fact, he says to him, I'm your servant. But he doesn't realize he's not a servant. He's a son. Now, let me just tell you all something. There are people who approach the Lord, and Paul called himself a doulos, a, a bond slave of Christ. We get all that. I mean, that's part of our identity is we realize we're nothing apart from Jesus. And that on our best day, we're called to serve him and live for him and honor him. How many of you understand? All that? That's like foundational. But Jesus said something radical. He said, I don't call you bond slaves. I call you sons and daughters. Listen to this. He says, you're family. I mean, you know, there's a difference between serving in a family and serving as a slave. We want people that serve the Lord. We want, we want to give our lives to the Lord, but it's a mentality. It is a mentality change. When you're a son, you're serving because it's part of your inheritance and part of all of this belongs to your family. You don't just show up for work. And God's saying to him, come on, you're not a slave. You're, you're not a bond slave. I have a covenant with your dad that's awesome. And I'm inviting you to get off the ground and to come sit at my table. I am inviting you to have relationship with me. I'm inviting you to sit with my own blood sons at the table. But you've got to get rid of that slave mentality. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you. Because of my promise to your father, Jonathan, I will give you all the prosperity, or all the property, rather, that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you're going to eat here with me at the king's table. Now, this is crazy. What would you do if someone was trying to kill you, and that person is now dead, and you're now the king? What would you do with their property? I'll tell you what we'd do. We'd suck it up into our property in a second. We'd say, thank you. That now belongs to me. I'm now king. It's under my control. David's saying, wait a minute, no, 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 we're family. And so what belonged to your grandfather, the guy that's been trying to kill me for 13 years, that guy, threw the javelin at me and all that, what belonged to him, I'm giving back to you. Now, I mean, he went from a beggar in the wilderness to a king's kid who's wealthy in a moment's time. And let me just ask you, what did he do to deserve it? Nothing It's what his daddy did. It's what 
to use the illustration of the body of Christ, that's what our big brother did, Jesus. That's what he did for us. This man's identity is completely turned upside down in a moment's time. Listen, because of covenant love. Covenant love. Look at Mephibosheth's response. He's still, he is still burdened under the weight of shame. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and he exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Now, this phrase has lost all of its meaning in American culture because how many of you know some people treat their dogs like parts of their family? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was a good confession or a, a bad confession. We're going to pray for all of you who have made an idol out of your chihuahua, all right, out of chubby. Where's, where's Dave? But let me just tell you something. If, if you go on a mission trip overseas, one of the things they will teach you is don't pet the dogs because those dogs are scavengers. Those dogs are not treated well. Those dogs are full of disease. Those dogs are mangy. You don't, hey, Chris, in Mongolia, do you snuggle up with a dog on the street? No, you don't do that. You don't do that because dogs literally eat what's left over after humans are finished eating. They eat the crumbs literally off the ground. In fact, the dead dog was a Hebrew expression for an embarrassing piece of trash or garbage. Some of Phibosheth's laying before this king King David, and he says, basically, I am a piece of garbage. Verse 9, then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba. He said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to his grandpa Saul and to his family. You and your sons and servants are to form, farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Verse 11, Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, the king, I'm your servant. I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wow. And Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah or Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem, and ate regularly at the king's table. How many of you know we're like Mephibosheth? We were running from God. We were full of shame and brokenness because of our sin and our guilt. And the Bible says we were enemies of God Almighty. But then Jesus showed up. He said, I got good news for you. There's a covenant that's been made that has your name on it. You can be a part of the family of God. You can be forgiven of the sins of your fathers and your own personal sin. You can quit running. You can quit living in the desert wasteland. You can quit living as a broken cripple under shame and guilt. And you can come sit at my table. And you can receive the inheritance that I have for you that was purchased through the death of my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I want to read an account from a writer named Paul Westerfeld that paints a powerful picture for us. And I want to close with this. He said, I can only imagine what it must have been like to have dinner at the king's house from that day forward. The grand table is decorated with royal linens and piled high with the finest foods, and servants are standing along the walls, and military officials and their handsome sons enter one by one. Suddenly they rise, for the king is coming. And as the king approaches the head of the table, they all sit down together. And one of the younger boys grabs for the bread, but the king says, wait. 
His eyes begin to scan the table. And he says, I don't think we're all here yet. The room grows quiet. And then they hear a peculiar noise echoing down the hallway. It's the sound of clumsy crutches clopping along the stone floors. A moment later, all heads turn, and standing in the doorway is Mephibosheth, the king's adopted son. Perhaps that night, a visiting dignitary from a far country watches the scene with great interest. He leans to a palace guard, and he whispers, What's all that commotion over this crippled kid? The guard responds, That crippled kid was born an enemy of the king. But David has chosen. David has chosen to make the boy his son. But the visitor protests, I don't understand. And the guard smiles. He said, not many people do. Isn't he a great king? <laughs> Isn't he a great king? Wow. This is an awesome story for any of us. But I told you, I think the Lord speaks to us out of our own brokenness and he helps us identify with different people in the Bible. I was like Mephibosheth. I was born with my feet turned so far in, with club feet, that if I would have been born in probably any other country but the United States of America, I probably would have spent my life like I see crippled people overseas. I've been, I've been in India before. I've seen people begging at stoplights that are dragging their broken limbs, crippled limbs behind them, hoping that they have enough you know, generosity from people to actually survive another day. So when I read about a crippled kid dragging his crippled feet before a king, first of all, there's something real personal about that for me. I'm grateful to be standing here today. I'm grateful for, uh, I'm grateful for the mercy of God in my life. And I'll tell you what, every time, every time I go overseas, I realize I have a responsibility to love the least of these, as we all do. But I spent many years with full-length casts on my legs and walking around on crutches, dragging my leg behind me, sleeping with those crazy corrective shoes with the bar between your legs, you know, for uh, early days of my life. And here's what happened, I think, in my life. Because I knew what I went through, the shame that was associated with that, it created in my heart a love for people that were also crippled in some way or hurt. God will use your shame to touch your heart for people who are going through similar areas of brokenness and pain in their lives. And listen to me, it's the compassion, it's the compassion of Jesus, the supernatural heart of God that flows through us, that releases the anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation in people's lives. Amen. I'm grateful for physical feet, but how you know I'm more grateful that the shame of my sin has been washed away forever. And when I hear the sound, this picture of 
the king saying, wait, we're not all present. I can only imagine what the sound of wooden crutches on hard stone floors sounded like and your, the, the sound of your feet being dragged behind you or somebody helping you get where you needed to go. But I mean, you know, it's a picture of an incredible feast that's going to happen. Revelation talks about it. Every nation, tribe, language, all of us broken kids that God adopted into his family are all going to be sitting around the table having the time of our life. And how do you know when you scoot up to the table, you can't see our, our crippled feet any longer. We're just seated at the table with our king. And we're there, not because of anything we did, but because of our big brother Jesus and everything that he did for us. So you know what? We're forgiven. We're incredibly loved. We're provided for. We are king's kids. We are rich in everything that matters. We're rich in relationships, rich in forgiveness, rich in mercy, rich in kindness. Oh, my goodness. How do you know our future is secure? It's amazing. Our present is awesome. And our past is under the blood of the covenant relationship that our big brother Jesus has with our Father. So we are perfectly set up to lift our heads high to gaze into the eyes of our Father who, listen to me, He saved you for relationship with you. He saved you because He loves you and He delights in you and He wants to enjoy you forever. What a, what a Father we have. So stand to your feet with me. I want to pray for you this morning. First of all, if you don't know Jesus, stop believing a lie about what God thinks about you. And come, make your way forward. Come and let somebody who's going to join me here at the altar. We've got a great army of people up here. They want to just pray with you and love you and introduce you to Christ. Today, God's calling you by name because he loves you and he knows you. And if you don't know him, stop believing the lies and say, I believe God the Father is crazy about me and he wants me to know him and have a relationship with him. We want to pray for you. If you're here today, too, and you're saying, I just want to get the shame off of my life. I'm tired of living under this curse of guilt and shame. We want to pray with you because freedom is yours. And if you need healing in your body, thank God the cross also covers our brokenness physically and that God wants to touch and heal people in this room today. If you've come here and you're desperate and you need a touch from God, come on down. We want to lay hands on you as the Bible instructs us and we want to pray that you would be healed this morning. So Father, thank you for these amazing crippled beggars that are all gathered together. Lord, we all stand on common ground at the cross. And Lord, we're part of the family because you adopted us. Thank you for this adoption by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the full covenant of blessing that you poured out on us. And Lord, may your reminder of your covenant love set us free from the lies of the enemy. Keep setting us free, Lord, from the shame that holds us back and help us to really love radically this week. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen.